Can you sail under the command of a pirate? Can you not? You don't listen to This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Words are things. We hold these truths to be, be self-evident. That all calling people out of their names. I kept coming back to it, just trying to figure out where in the world we had gone so wrong that it had ended up here. Well, I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your Huckleberry. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? What we've got here is... Failure to communicate. Some man you just can't reach. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You don't tell your pappy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communication. Oh, you're not entertained. That's a powerful new form. Are you not entertained? Is that why you are here? And welcome to the Pirate Professor Podcast. This is your captain speaking. I will be your guide and liaison through the next hour or... Ah, it's going to be more than an hour. Turn that down. Okay, so... This is... This, hang on. I don't know if you can hear that. It's storming um, right now. So, um, it's a currently at the cabin. It's April. Spring storms are coming in. Already sat through a uh, one tornado warning of the day. Um, it's another interesting podcast because what I've chosen to do is not so much go out and find somebody that's I've done what I always do it's not that different I found a friend um, and Eric Van Meter is a guy I have known for 30 years um, as of this fall I guess August Turn this up a little bit. Try to get a little more volume out of me. Um, that's better. So Eric's a friend of mine, and we have been really good friends since we were both 18 years old. Both came from small towns in Arkansas, met at a university. Um, Took similar paths, but different. I guess very different paths. Uh, we both deal with college students, but uh, Eric 
became a, a minister and when I became a journalist. Uh, but now he works on a campus in South Dakota uh, as a campus minister. And I'm still living the pirate life uh, in Arkansas and Gulf Coast. So, um, our paths have kind of, we've stayed in contact the entire time, uh, sometimes working very closely together, and sometimes as now, uh, it's mostly a phone call away. Um, I don't know if you can hear that or not, that rain. This is one of my favorite times of year. Like, it's... It is when... It's that tension between... Spring is that tension between winter and... Winter letting go and summer coming in. And in Arkansas... It's kind of like a ground zero a lot of times for spring storms. And today is one of those. Everything's turning green. Trees are budding. Uh, the creek behind the cabin is full. Very full. Um, and, you know, I'm just sitting here alone. Listening to the rain and thunder. Um, it's not always... The weather's not always polite, though. I mean... This is how growth happens, though, I guess. I just completely diverged from what I was talking about, Van Meter. He will understand. Um, anyway, uh, so it's the time of the end of the year, the school year. Everybody's burned out. Students are burned out, stressed. Faculty are burned out. This is the time we get a million emails and phone calls from people that are like, it's finally trying to figure out like oh wait I may actually fail this class and so we have to make these decisions of to offer grace give them a chance or sometimes it's tough love and they're like you know what you had your chance and this is where accountability comes in um, and everybody's different and everybody has different parameters for making those kinds of decisions but we all have to live with those decisions. Uh, it's a growth sometimes requires hard conversations, and sometimes it requires I don't know, sometimes it requires unanswered emails, sometimes it requires uh, heartfelt conversations, you know, where somebody ends up crying. That's growing, though. Growing is never easy. Um, but, I'm um, kind of going back to where I was originally talking about Van Meter. Um, period of college is a point that people, it's, it's a really transformative period of time if you let it be. People that make the biggest mistakes with college are the ones that just sort of go to class, sort of do their work, don't interact with anybody, don't make any friends, and then they 
eventually graduate and they sort of go on, but they've never, they haven't, you know, evolved as human beings. Um, that was different for us. Um, where some people, like high school was the, 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 like the peak time of their life. Um, for others, like myself and like Van Meter, uh, college was the time where we, like we finally, I wouldn't say it's we peaked, but it's when we first really started to understand who we were individually. Um, coming from small places, it's kind of, sometimes it's kind of hard to find yourself, especially if you don't fit in a normal mold. And so, you know, there's a tendency, especially when you're young, to try to blend in. And, uh, you know, this is pre-social media days, pre-cell phone days. You just, you made friends. You made friends in person, and you just found them, and you called them on the phone, and you did stuff together. And so this is a conversation about finding best friends and finding a community of people that that really set the standard for the rest of our lives. And so um I guess the biggest hope that I can have for somebody is that you can find friends like this and uh find people like this. Because it's a little bit of a taste of heaven. It really is. So um, I'm going to quit talking because we, Van Meter and I talked for quite a while. And you'll see that I'm kind of a dick when it comes to being a friend, uh, especially with him. But it's it's dickishness in in the greatest of love. uh, And it's just kind of our dynamic. So. Bear with me on that one. Uh, and at the end, Van Meter has his own podcast, so if you're interested in him, uh, at the end I've got uh, a recording of his latest one. He does one every Monday called Monday's Penny, uh, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So um, without further ado, I would like to introduce to you my very good friend and... Eric Van Meter. smile. Little Moses drifts downstream in the Nile. A fumbling reply, an awkward, rigid laugh, and I'm carried helpless by my floating basket raft. Your flavor in my mind is back and forth between. Sweeter than any wine, as bitter as mustard greens. And it's light and dark as honeydew and pumpernickel bread. It's 
trap I set for you seems to have caught my leg instead. I was recording, okay, so I was recording the WebEx side of this, but I wasn't recording it on Audition, so now I just clicked over, and now I'm... Or just now getting to anything interesting, so... Okay. Um, hang on, now let me find where you, there you are. Um, so as a writer or as a uh, 
man of God. And we'll go back to the bunny ear thing that yeah, you and I yeah, can see. Uh, the air quote. Are you doing your job if you're not stepping on toes? Well, and I, I had that conversation with uh, one of my friends up here who's, uh, he's another sort of air quote man of God. He's, he's a Methodist pastor, but he's spent most of his career in education, you know, mm-hmm. teaching at uh, online seminaries and things like that. Um, and his, his idea is that the pastor is not supposed to be a prophet, that you're supposed to be, uh, basically, you just care for people. That's, that's all you do. Mm-hmm. And, and especially whenever you're preaching, speaking, writing, anything public. And my comeback is always, but that, that's not the model that we get. That, yeah, there are times you just swallow what you want to say for the sake of, of peace. And, you know, at, at this point in some of the conflicts I've got, that's what I'm having to do because there's just no path forward mm-hmm. if, I, um, if I continue the fight. But, but if you don't speak it, if you don't, if you don't tell the truth, and what are you doing, calling yourself a, a writer, an artist, a pastor, anything? You know, uh, you you've got to tell the truth, whether people enjoy that or not. And uh, that that's what's gotten the the American church in so much trouble, particularly on the the evangelical side, but also on the mainline side, mm-hmm. also. And so. You can't go back and undo that, but you also don't have to be a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> For whatever reason, you just left me stumped. I didn't. I, this may be one of the moments that I don't have something to say. Um, I was going to make a Joel Osteen comment, uh, but and then I lost it. There was something. Uh, there was. It was a long time ago. Um, I was talking about it was it was writing about basically politics in the church, um, American politics in the church, and it was it was essentially said that the mainline denominations had all the political power up till like the civil rights uh, movement. Yes. At which point, a lot of the mainline denominations jumped onto the side of civil rights, um, and as a result, lost. Uh, political sport um and in that vacuum you had um a certain demographic of evangelical churches move into that and sort of set the stage to where we have you know what eventually became the religious right yeah nixon's southern strategy uh included those churches yeah okay do you know more about that than i do because i don't well not not I'm not an expert on it, but mm-hmm. uh, but that's a pretty clear line to trace is that through the, the 50s and 60s, or early 60s at least, you know, you've got a little bit more uh, moderate politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that, not that even Nixon wasn't the crazy far-right guy that we've got like Tom Cotton's and people like that today. Right. But, um, but their, their strategy was, well, the... South has voted Democratic since the Civil War, but if the Democrats and the mainline are going to get on board with civil rights and upend the status quo, then we'll just um, we'll just basically quietly align with the segregationists. 
mm-hmm. and that's a winning strategy. And and the Republicans won the South, cheered on, and and now their their bedrock base, their most important base, is that religious right. Um, uh, Kristen Costa-Sumé, the Jesus and John Wayne. Have you read that book? I have not. Oh, yeah, that, that'll give you all you need to know about it. It's It's gotten a lot of buzz uh, the last year and a half or so. Uh, but she, she makes a pretty clear argument that the reason that the, uh, the evangelical church has gotten into so much trouble, partly, is that, that they have so aligned with themselves with this Old West ideal of the the you know muscular cowboy that is going to come in and save the day usually works alone uh, is always white is usually fighting darker people you know whether they're Native Americans or Mexicans mm-hmm. uh, that uh, is going to uh, take care of the women because the women can't take care of themselves and there, there's this whole mindset and it's it's no wonder then that their hero you know their their demigod is Ronald Reagan, who was, before he was president, a movie cowboy. Maybe not to the extent that John Wayne was, but that right. was his public persona. And how often that stereotype has led them to follow people that aren't worth following just because they talked a good game and weren't afraid to use their fists. Gotcha. Okay, now, well, you know, an entire generation that grew up on Gunsmoke, so... And John Wayne films. Right. So I, I get yep. it. I get it. Um, this wasn't the direction I was originally planning on going on, but it's Well, just, we, we can cut that out. You can use that later. Just, we can do another podcast. I'm just going to leave it in. There's no point. This. So the joy of doing these things is that it's not so scripted that I right. have to very organize. And I'm editing every thing that seems awkward out of it. Um, I don't know, just because they're just conversations. Yeah. What I was specifically, uh, you already know this, uh, but for everybody else, talking about community. So this kind of going back, it's a little bit of a deviation from what I was. So my whole kind of theme this whole semester has been, it's like, how do you know something's true? Um, yeah. You know, going back with um, the philosophers and and men of God and whoever, and then you, um, writers, Air basically, quote. you know, air quote, um, for, for those who don't, and I'll probably at some point in the, when I'm leading up to this or doing the introduction of the podcast. So you and I have known each other for legit 30 years now. Yep. That'd be 30 years this fall, 30 years this fall that we met at Arkansas tech university as stupid little farm kids uh, yeah. coming in off moving to the big city uh, and going to the big university um, and then stumbled into each other at um, the Arkansas Tech Wesley Foundation way back when in uh, that time uh, established some of the strongest friendships I still have to this day Right. Um, and this is one of the things that you and I talk about a lot. Um, and one of the things that it's kind of important for me to like let people know, it, it started within the religious context, but the f- 
and you can define the friendship because I read what you, you posted earlier. Um, like these are just genuine friendships. Like you get, you get into the, the ugliness of everyone and you don't even care. Um, I may have, you know, I've done some mean shit to you over the years just because, um, you're my friend. The snap pops. God, I was one of my traumatized there's, there's, by the snap There's two things. There's two moments that I okay. So there's actually three, three moments that I I I can genuinely remember <sighs> showing aggressive behavior to you. One, um, I was in my dorm room. Probably, I, I, let's be honest, I wasn't the most academic student in the world. Um, that came I think I know where this is going. Are you sure you want to tell the yeah, story? Yeah, I'm going to listen. I'm okay, gonna, okay. so I, was, um, I wasn't really the most academic. I believed more in learning how to do the technical side of things, and I was far more interested in like getting good at the technical side of my degree than I was sitting in class. Um, you know, as in, it's irony doesn't even begin to compare you know explain how i ended up doing what i do now um but other than that i can i when students are my students are acting that way i get it like i have a certain appreciation for what they're doing um i did um i guess i would you could say i was pretty hormonal back then as in um yeah i was chasing a lot of girls is good word yeah you know Rhymes with, rhymes with hormonal. Um, <laughs> I don't remember exactly what it, what the, there was one particular girl that you and I both knew and she'll remain nameless. Um, but <laughs> I was, yeah, I was going, I don't know, we were hanging out a lot and I was going to go out with her one night and you're like, no, you base I, I don't remember exactly what, why you were trying to get me to stay home, except I was staying out all night, every night. And I had this monkey. Because this you little, kept saying, I got to stop this. I got to stop not this. this is I got to stop this. I got to stop And you're trying to be, this. you're trying to be, you're, you're trying to hold me accountable. <laughs> and I was like, but I want to make out with her. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and this little stuffed monkey, which by the way, I still have. I was cleaning out. No way. We've got a shipping container. Uh, and, uh, I was cleaning it out and go like last fall, I just went through and cleaned out a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, you just you drag around with you from move to move. You'd like, you know, it's sentimental or whatever. And, uh, and it was just, it had gotten too much. So I was going through everything and just throwing a lot of stuff away. And then I opened a box and there that Sam, the monkey was right. Anyway. So I have this monkey. It's just a stuffed monkey that I got from my grandparents when I was a kid. And I was just dragging it around with me cause he was kind of funny looking. And uh, I also had a Civil War bayonet that my grandfather had given me. And I had them both in my dorm room. And you were, like, blocking the door. Like, I was trying, you know, I'm like a freaking bucking rut at this point. And you're trying to, like, no, you're not going out. And I, I took the bayonet and I held it up to the monkey. And I was like, I don't, what, what exactly did I say to you? It was something to the effect, I've known this monkey longer than you and I'm not afraid to stab it or something like that. Yeah, you, you, you said, I have known this monkey a lot longer than I've known you, and I love this monkey, and I will run this monkey through with a bayonet, and if you don't get out of my way, I might do the same to you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, 
God, God bless, you know, youthful hormones. Uh, I think you got it. And if, if I remember right, you, you stepped aside. Absolutely. So. Like back into the hallway against the wall and just said, you know, I've known Billy, like we, we knew each other very well, almost instantly. And by that time, I think I knew you well enough to say it won't be the bayonet, but it could be something else. So we're just going to, going to back up which brings me to you know incident number two and then i'll get to the 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 snap pop thing this three is snow days like the snow days are a thing that (laughs) i don't think we didn't get well you didn't get so when you did get them like you took full advantage and this is one of the things like if i'm gonna bitch and moan about my current like the current generation of students is they don't take advantage of stuff like this that we did um, and I remember like we were going to get a snow day, but it started snowing like at 2 a.m. Like it was, it was <laughs> stupid hour, but we're like, we're going to get a snow day. And for everybody, you know, who's listening, like there was no internet. We weren't calling each other on the cell phones or texting each other. You had landlines and, uh, we lived like a block away from each other at this point in time. Um, and I, uh. I called you. I was like, hey, it's snowing. Get up. We're going to go play. And, you're, you're, and you were grumpy little SOB. Whatever it was, and you just hung up on me. And one of your roommates was over at the house who had a key. Was it Warren? Who was it? Yeah, it was Eric Warren. It was Eric Warren. And, um, <laughs> and we're like, we're coming over. You better get your ass up. We're coming over. And you did not uh get up and so we went over to your apartment unlocked the door i got like a big handful of snow you were sound asleep and i just pulled back your underwear and just threw it in that is a memory that will not fade and nor should it nor should it next time somebody tells you to get up get up uh see the thing was i you woke me up you called and i was already asleep yep and you woke me up, and I don't really remember that phone call. I remember like this impression of getting a phone call, uh-huh. but I don't. I don't remember that conversation. And you guys were explaining it to me later, and I'm trying to piece this together through this, you know, two a.m. just woke up fog with snow down my pants. You woke up though, quickly, <laughs> quickly, and with with uh, great vulgarity, as if I remember right. Uh. <laughs> well, you know. And then, and then thing three, there was so, um, <laughs> we mostly avoided living together during that, those times, except for like one summer that you, uh, moved in and it didn't last long. Cause I think you had, I think people could probably imagine that like people, like I did mean stuff. Um, <laughs> like you're like, I'm not living with him. Um, but you moved in with me for like a summer, I think. It wasn't a summer? It was something like that. It was, it was a summer, yeah. But it, yeah. And so, and you were dating a certain someone at that particular time who may also remain nameless. Mm-hmm. And your hormonal ass was dragging in at 2 a.m. or ridiculous hours. And I, you know, some people have to work and we don't, we just can't stay out like that. Uh, and you were coming in late. And well, you know, it was, you know, 4th of July was coming around selling fireworks. So 
I bought a bunch of Snapdragons and I knew you were coming in late. And so I just left the porch light off and I covered the front porch with Snapdragons. And so when you came in at 2 a.m. <laughs> and stepped on those things, it's, it's one of those that I regret that there isn't a, uh, we didn't have like the the ring door cameras that they you know have now doorbell cameras. Oh, it would have gone viral. Oh God, yeah. it was been beautiful. I was dancing, because there there was uh, no escape in that. <laughs> I, well, I thought I was getting assassinated by the rest of the mafia. Uh huh. Like it just sounds like machine gun fire <laughs> under my feet, and and there's no way to get away from it because you you jump to one side and there's more. There's of those more because I coated that. Yeah, yeah, I coated the porch, you know. But did you die? No. Did, no. you, did you lose a couple of years? Probably. Well, and I love how over the course of, of about a year and a half, a little bit over, uh -huh. not quite two years, you went from, I will stab this monkey and possibly you to get to this girl. Yep. All the way to crotchety old man. I don't care how much you, you love this girl. Get home because I got to sleep. I got to sleep. Well, I'm a... I... Grumpy old man in, in training is essentially what we are. But see, the good news is that despite all that, yeah, we did manage to become grumpy old men. Uh -huh. And everybody in these stories is now happily married, none of them to each other. So we're all good. <laughs> it all worked out in the end. Okay, so I'll, uh, before everybody thinks that I'm just an asshole to be friends with, because... Um, <laughs> Because there was, okay, so everybody, I, I call you, I've called you jackass for I don't know how many years now. Um, I don't even remember where it started. It started somehow in a conversation with Jason Molitor uh, back, gosh, when we were, were all, um, Jason and I were living in Little Rock and you were working there. Uh-huh. That's been a while back. I just remember that when you started it, I, um, I don't know if I was working for the church at that point in time. I think maybe, yeah, I think I was. Yeah, I was working yeah, for the conference were. office, and you had gotten a job at one of the other Little Rock churches that will also remain nameless. Um, and you called me, and I was just like, "Hey, jackass!" And I was really happy, you know. And then you're like, "Your own speakerphone," and I've got like three other women in here with me, and everybody. And at that point, everything your, your reputation was solidified. Yes. So, um, now all that being said. There are one other story from college, um, since college love fest here, that was not about you being mean, but it was about you and me being stupid, was we would also, apart from just that kind of crap, we would have a lot of conversations. Uh, and one night, you and I sat up just talking all night long, and we we had this idea, like, and we were freshmen, so we were eight, 18 and stupid, we are like, let's go up to Mount Nebo and watch the sunrise. Mm -hmm. And so we went up to Mount Nebo to watch the sunrise and we we're still having this conversation, never conversation, never ending. And they were like, it's daylight, but there's no sunrise. And that's when we realized that we were sitting at sunset point and not sunrise point. Yes. And so, yeah, the sun came up right behind us. Right. <laughs> so. Oh, to be 19 again. I mean, to be 19 and know what I know now. Right. Youth is wasted on the young. Isn't it, that what they say? It really is. So all of those stories being told, 
Um, one of the other things that you and I have talked about is uh, we've kind of been like we had a great group of friends back then, mm-hmm. and uh, we lost Jason uh, years a few years ago, and. But one of the things that you and I have lamented in countless conversations is how we've been kind of chasing that dragon ever since. Yeah. Yeah, that that once you once you have that experience of authentic community um, and that community dissolves, which we knew it was going to. I mean, it, it's artificial. College is, a, is an artificial time in a lot of ways. It doesn't mean that it's not real community. It just means it's it's put together community. It's it's manufactured community that's different from the way the rest of the world works. But what we had there was uh, was still very real. It was substantial. And once you've you've had that experience of being held up uh, and held together by this this web of people that you really trust, that really care about you, that you deeply care about then you just can't settle for um, for what passes for community in most other settings. And that's, that's something I knew the minute that I left Russell um, in August of, uh, what would that have been, 1996. Mm-hmm. So 25 years ago, the, the minute that I left to go to graduate school in Kentucky, I knew that that part of my life was over mm-hmm. and I didn't want it. I didn't want it back because I'm like, we were all moving on. We can't re- recreate that. It's not like, oh, I want to go back to the good old days, mm-hmm. but it's been really hard to find something analogous going forward since that fits with the stage of life that we're in subsequently. So what made it so great? Let me ask you that question. Um, I think partly a little bit of naivete mm-hmm. that um, when you're when you're a, a healthy teenager or young adult, you tend to approach people. You, you default to goodness. You tend to approach people with a default toward they're going to tell the truth. They're going to present themselves honestly, um, and they're. Uh, and if, if they say they're ca- they care, they're really going to care. Mm-hmm. Now, that obviously leads to all kinds of trouble and bad behavior in some circles. Uh, that That's a lot of the problem with sexual assault on campus uh, is that that makes it worse, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, you've got people that default to thinking the other person is, is good. So I think there's a little bit of naivete, but that that also enabled us to approach each other without suspicion. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I, I think set this apart, though, because any group of friends can get together and enjoy each other's company and hang out and, and do stupid stuff and, um, you know, just work out that part of life. And, and most of us do that together with other people. I think what really set this community apart was the not so much the religious observances. We were all involved in Wesley Foundation, so we went to Bible studies and we went to worship and we were uh, really involved with that. But 
we we really learned an approach to each other that was rooted in the way Jesus did things. I mean, that's what Brother Dave and Lisa, they were really, um, uh, and I think Holly Ruth, when she was there, was was the same way, that really tried to root us in, okay, how does Jesus do things? Mm -hmm. And then what does that tell you about how you should do things with each other? So what was what made that community sustainable was that we learned a lot of those things. And so we were able to get through conflict. We were able to forgive each other. We were able to be uh, honest about who we were without being ashamed of who we were. Mm -hmm. And, and those things are not normal parts of, of even in college communities. You know, those, those are special things when you find them. I think one of the other things just coming, like you came from a small town, um, yeah, I came from a small town, small rural towns. Um, both of us grew up on farms. Both of us have personalities that don't necessarily jive really well in small rural communities. And I think there was, there was a level and it, and that's just you and me, like, you know, D Jason came from Dallas. So, uh, right. but there, I think one of the things that I was really looking for it, or found uh, and, and again, this is all pre-social media days is you found people who were like, you're, you found your people. Uh, yes. Um, you're like, holy crap. There are people who actually kind of think like me, like I'm not. Right. And it was in there. And, and that was a big click for me was like, um, or like it clicked in my brain was like, I'm not such an outcast after all. Like there's people who right. actually, who like me, I don't have to pretend that I'm this other thing just to fit into my small town. Right. And I don't know. And I, and I think I, and maybe the bond largely came from just, that was the first time I'd ever experienced something like that. Right. I, I think the, the belonging element is just, it's hard to overstate mm -hmm. uh, because when I, when I look back at little Charleston, Arkansas, a little high school, I had people I hung out with. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had a handful, you know, three, four, five people that, that were friends that, um, that I could be fairly authentic with, you know. But we didn't really know each. We didn't know ourselves well enough to be able to really share like that. And I think one of the things of crossing into that threshold where you think of yourself as an adult uh, and in an environment where you're encouraged to be who you are, to be real, to be reflective about that and about who you want to become, uh, that that opens up a lot more possibility with what you can offer to one another in friendship. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the fact that we were the fact that we didn't have to create that from scratch, but that we were welcomed into a community that already existed, that had already developed a lot of those practices right. and just taught them to us, um, but taught them to us in a way that said, you're already one of us, you already belong. We know that we know that you're just kind of idiots because every 18 year old male is an idiot, yes. um, but we love you. And, and, and that, that was huge getting that message. I still refer to first semester freshmen as clinically insane. Yeah, it's, it's rough. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, 
again, things are like things are different now, and and there's part of me that I'm constantly weighing, grumpy old man me, um, right. who's you know who was there 30 years ago, doing this versus you know times change, things change. Um, 18 year olds going off on their own for the first time, they're still stupid. It doesn't matter if you're talking 1910 or 2022. Right. Um, it's, you know, because people are trying to figure out who they are at this point in time. Um, the thing that I'm seeing, though, these days is, and maybe you're seeing it on the campus that you are, is that people have become so insulated and that their communities are digital more than in person um you know a kid that sits in you know sits in her or i say a kid a college girl first semester second semester it doesn't matter or fifth semester sits in her apartment watching tiktok videos and on instagram or snapchat or whatever overcome with some kind of anxiety and nobody to really talk to I don't know if you see that, but I see that all the time. Yeah, constantly. Um, and it's, I hear people say, oh, everybody makes social media the enemy. Don't make social media the enemy. Well, it ain't our friend. Right. And while it, I don't think that, that the tool itself is, uh, it's not entirely value neutral, but it's, it's also not a demon. Right. The, the um, the business model, the whole model is built on younger and younger people, middle mm-hmm. schoolers. You know, um, I, I, I have parents that I work with that are fighting their kids right now who are 10 and 11 years old to keep them from getting TikTok accounts and um, Instagram accounts because of the just damage it can do. So I think the digital environment's part of it because the the we've got to have something to live up to and something to live into mm-hmm. and okay great we can look on uh pick your your platform of choice we can look on that and we can find someone that's more like us or that's more like what we want to be but most of the time it's not attainable and even if it is attainable there's no path to get there because all you see is the finished product. So people that listen to your podcast or, or my podcast, both the people that listen to my podcast. Um, I've got four people who listen to mine. Hey, you, you, you doubled uh, what I'm doing. Uh-huh. But the, um, they only hear the finished product. Right. And they, they don't hear the starts and stops and the coughs and the sniffs, or at least not all of them, the ones we can edit out. We get mm-hmm. out of there. So it's, and that's the way we want it to be, but that doesn't reflect the full reality of who we are or how we got there. And really you can only do that with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's gotta be, there's gotta be a flesh and blood person that's willing to sit down across the table from you and you pick up over time. Well, if I admire and want to be like that, then that's, these are some of the things that I do. I, I start to emulate, but uh, right now, so many of the models are just, I'm trying to emulate the finished product, but I have no idea how to shape myself to get there. And that's just in terms of popularity. Forget the hard work of actually 
forming a human soul. <laughs> well, one of the things that's really changed in the past few years, like um, it's the move in the social media world. To, you're, you're moving away from develop, developing a community to developing an audience. And those are two very different things. Yes, it's a brand. Uh, yeah, so my brand. And so people never get the real you. And even... Like and it was one of the cool things with with social media. It's like when it first started, because um, I was neck deep in that world when it first started. And I remember the buzzword at the time was tribes. Everybody's got to find yeah. their tribe. And I'm and at that point I was like, yeah, I get it. Um, because if you're this kid that grew up in a small town wherever, and you're a little, you know, you can't really find people that are like you. You suddenly have a tool that will allow you to find people like you who are could be anywhere. And that was a very cool idea for me. Um, mm -hmm. But over, t but what you end up because you have this distance between you, and there's, this, you know, it's a noise as as it would be called technically. Um, and a level of disconnect is you don't get the full version of you; you get the projected version of you. Um, and yeah, you may have like late night conversations and you're chatting with somebody that you're kind of being who you are, but you still don't get a hundred percent. Like you don't get to, you know, you don't get the wake up on it, you know, sit up all night watching, you know, the sunrise over a mountain and turns out it's not it. You don't get to do the practical jokes. You don't get to do like, I don't get to see that person when they get home after a really bad day or a really good day and see, like, the minor fluctuations in their personality. And so you don't get to see all of that. Um, and so you get this sort of sanitized, insulated view of it. Um, and it's not, that every, you know, it's not that everybody puts out, like, this is the perfect me. Some people are just absolutely, you know, drama queens or kings on social media and the only thing that you see is them you know publicly being passive aggressive to whoever um yeah. but that's still not the full them um that's not the right. full package no i i've got i've got several friends including a handful of students that um i just had to decide we can either be um friends in in actual real life Mm -hmm. Or I can follow you on social media, but I can't do both because uh, if 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 that is truly your internal monologue, I think you're crazy, and I don't want you know. No, I get that. I, yeah. I don't want to approach you like that. I think right. you bring up a really a really good point though uh, about the what you said getting home after a long day. One one of the the difficulties with a with the distance in uh, relationships like that, even even in, when it's used in a healthy way. Because mm -hmm. I agree, I, my students, it's really hard for them to imagine when I say, look, I joined Facebook in 2007 and I was excited about it because it was fun. Uh, uh -huh. because, because, because it was enjoyable. It wasn't just a playground for trolls. Um, right. it, it, was, it was really, um, you connected with people and, uh, you know, through, um, through that, I, I made a couple of friends online that I was friends with for years. Uh, one of them, Norman until he died and never met him in person. Uh, I got, to, never... I told you I met him once, right? 
Yeah. 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 Well, it was a few months before he died. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I remember you telling me that after, uh, after word came down that, that he had died, but so it's, it's hard for them to imagine that, yeah. but even in the best of settings, even with, with friends like that, you don't get to see them surprised and you don't get to be surprised in front of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, you don't get to look in each other's faces whenever one's just gotten bad news. You know, somebody broke up with me or my grandpa died or, uh, even small stuff. I got a bad grade or somebody yelled at me at work and you, you don't get those, those nuances that help build trust because, um, seeing that triggers an empathy response within us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we learn to be empathetic in that way. Whereas if we just see it online, we see so much of that online that it's just, wow, okay, you know, somebody's just whining. Right. Um, and it's hard to know when to take that seriously or not. So I, I think that's a good point you bring up that uh, that we've, we lose that whenever we don't have that embodied community around us. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. One of the things that I, so when I was working for the church, that was one of the things, again, we're, we're still chasing the dragon. And this is one of the things that you and I have talked about and, and you wrote about it is um, once you get a taste for it, like it's, it's like nothing. It's it's honestly everything just falls short, and it, it constantly feels like everything's falling short, and that part is is disappointing. Um, but one of the things that when I was working for the church, especially, and I was having to do, I was doing the consulting. Everybody was like, "We're going to build community. We're going to build," and it was always, "We're going to build community," and and specifically, we're going to do things specifically to build community. And like it, when, when people approach things like that, it never works. And one of the things, and I was reading, I think on community, I think it was the Bonhoeffer book. Maybe, maybe I'm getting it wrong, but it was life together, life together. That's what it was. Um, and it was basically for those who don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. Is he Lutheran? I can't remember. Yes. He was, okay, yeah, he was so a Lutheran he, pastor. He was a Lutheran, Lutheran pastor um, in Germany during World War II uh, who was adamantly against uh, Hitler and, and the Nazis. Uh, and in fact, um, was involved in an attempt to assassinate Hitler, which doesn't seem like a very um, pastoral thing to do. But... That's who, you know, it was tough times call for tough measures sort of things, I guess. Um, And you can, you can unpack that. But when they were, um, I can't remember if they, I think they were in hiding at this point Um, or they were in prison. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, But one of the things that he said in that book was that essentially that community is always a byproduct of something else. If you're in, if you're intentionally trying to create community, you will destroy it. Yes. Um, and I don't think I could have appreciated that, um, statement unless I'd already experienced, you know, what it sounds, it's a cliche statement, authentic community. 
but once I'd understood what it actually felt like, um, then you realize, and again, it's kind of like when I'm coming, talking about friendships and social media, you realize a second rate, uh, substitution when you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about Bonhoeffer for me. Uh, give me, you've got more insight to him than I do. Well, and, and I'm, I'm not an expert on Bonhoeffer by any means, but, uh, it's, it's hard to be, it's hard to be a thoughtful, uh, pastor without reading Bonhoeffer or at least reading about Bonhoeffer, knowing, uh, knowing some of, of what he did and what he stood for and, and his ideas of community are really, really challenging, uh, for us because they're, um, you know, you said, and I, I can't remember the exact quote, but but what he said about well, if, if you're just trying to create community for the sake of the benefits that it provides, you're not going to get there. Uh, but if you are are trying to, if you're focusing on Christ and trying to hold each other accountable and live together uh, in a good way, then community is the natural byproduct and a necessary component of that. Mm. So he, uh, he was very German. He was very enlightenment oriented. You go back and read him some today and say, uh, okay, you know, I don't quite buy into that, but you got to remember this, this guy's, uh, he didn't, he didn't live that long. He, he wasn't very old when he died. I, I can't remember. I want to say he was in his late thirties. Um, he was actually executed um, by the Nazis um, the day before the concentration camp. I think he'd been in Buchenwald and got moved to Flossenburg, maybe, and, and was uh, awaiting liberation. The, the Allies were on the doorstep, and word came down from the higher-up Nazis, Bonhoeffer does not get out of here alive. And so they hung him uh, the day before the uh, uh, concentration camp was liberated. So he, he lives his entire life under pressure and under this, this threat. Um, but the question in his day is, how do we live well under this? And you find a lot of really messy stuff in there because he talks about the importance of Christian community being engaged in the world, not being uh, just a retreat. Um, he doesn't exactly argue against monasteries, but he does argue against monasteries or at least a monastic life that would sequester itself from the world. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he, he would not want one that, that wasn't engaged in the world. But at the same time, he forms this community that has to withdraw from much of the world because the world around them is on fire and it's threatening to, to kill them all. So he talks a lot about confession and about, uh, about just vulnerability and genuineness and uh, doing the, the hard work of, of trying to, to help each other develop a better character. Um, so there's this individual focus, but this idea that it has to happen in community, uh, that there's a certain way that we live together that enables us to be alone uh, so that that we can withdraw when we need to, but it also supports us and brings us into community uh, to be carried along the way. And uh, for him, 
community was a gift. I mean, it was a, it was a grace of God. It was a, a means of grace mm-hmm. that, uh, that formed our souls, uh, but also provided us so many other benefits that, that were, um, uh, what, what's the word that not just beneficial, but maybe enjoyable that, that were fun, you know, that felt, uh, a certain way also that made you feel even when the world was on fire, that it's good to live this way. Um, even though it's hard, it's good to live this way. Mm-hmm. What, what applies to that today? Like it does, cause the world feels like it's on fire. Yeah. Well, what doesn't, uh, I, I think that's, there's a lot that we can learn from Bonhoeffer, uh, and there, he had a resurgence a few years ago, not too long ago, mm-hmm. maybe 10 or 12 years because of a, a really popular book by of all people, Eric Metaxas. So this was before that we, uh, that Eric Metaxas came out as just crazy, but, um, but he wrote a decent book uh-huh. about it that, that did what a good biography should. It gave people something to argue about and uh, that uh, shed new light on his work. But I, I think we're we're drawn to him today. I think there there's not just the community aspect. We feel the need for that, and so we're 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 looking at someone that seemed to know about it mm-hmm. to try to teach us. Uh, so I, I think that's that's part of why we look back to him. But I think part of it too, and maybe not in the most helpful way, is that he speaks with a lot of clarity, and he speaks with a lot of conviction. Uh, about this is the way, these are the ideas. And um, for a lot of Americans, they're drawn to that because religion has become a retreat into certainty. He was the cheap, so I, he was the cheap grace guy, right? Yeah. And, and cheap, yeah. how did he define cheap grace? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm afraid of misquoting him here. Let me uh, see if I can pull that up. Um yeah, it, it was cheap and cheap and costly grace was the phrase, but um, how did he say it? Uh, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like a cheap Jack's wares. The sacraments, forgiveness of sins, the consolation of religions are all thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Um, and then he, he goes on, and he gets to costly grace, and says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price. It is the kingly rule of Christ. The call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door which at which a man must knock. And, and he has a lot more to say about that, but that, that's one of the more famous passages. So, yeah, he had strong opinions. We'll just say that. Oh, very much. Yeah. Very much. Um, so, I guess the question then for us... As a grumpy old man, um, what do we do with all that? 
or is there anything that we do with all that? Is there like, is this the point in our, I guess that we're supposed to be both of us work on college campuses, uh, in sort of in different realms and not from a, necessarily from a religious standpoint, from a community standpoint, like what is it that we know that we wish like, or let me put it in, not we, but you like, what is it, you know, now that like you could wish you could just like grab, you know, an incoming freshman by the ears and go, look, if, just get this. If you can get this, you're going to be so much further ahead. Well, I, and I've, I've had this, um, I've had this conversation with a few students, uh, actually the, the, um, blogging about it recently also, the, there's a little, little bit of guilt in me mm-hmm. because I want to really create uh, or at least enable. I want to open the door for authentic community and expressions of that. And one of the images I use being the you know kind of artsy metaphorical guy that I am is that I want them to know what heaven sounds like. Uh, music is a big part of what we do here. We're not professional musicians, so you know it, it's sometimes the quality is great, and sometimes well, we do the best we can. But uh, but there's something that's vulnerable about you when you sing, uh, mm-hmm. and especially when you sing in a group like that. So I, I use that as a metaphor to say I, I want you to know what heaven sounds like, because if you don't know what it sounds like, you'll always be settling for something less. And so, so you're setting them up for mi- a lifetime of misery is what you're trying to do. That is the problem because <laughs> uh, on on one hand, if if you don't communicate what you what you have experienced and what you think you know, then you just leave them dumb and you leave them always trying to convince themselves that what we what they have is the best thing there is. Um, well, this every, seems fine with everybody else, so this must be it, right? Right. But then, if you if you show them, no, there's there's a lot more. Um, then they spend their lives like you and I have, looking for looking for it, and often not being able to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not exactly a fair choice. I'm angry at the universe for that, but at the same time. Uh, I think the second choice is better. I mean, I, I think we need to know what it sounds like and, and what we're looking for. And and I, I think I've lived in several different places. I've worked several different jobs the last um, 30 years. And there have been glimpses of just real community. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I've been invited into that. Sometimes I've helped create it. But I think the um, the takeaway is is don't give up, you know, right. and keep inviting people into that space, knowing that occasionally you're going to get burned. And I, oh man, yeah, I, I've got some stories I don't want to relive, but but keep trying anyway. Um, and and there are a few practices that I think really enable that: food, uh, cook. Get people over for meals. Just uh, hang out together. Grab a beer. Uh, music, I, I think, is is a great one. Also, and and there's all kinds of other surprising things that you can you can rally around. But you used the word earlier, noise. It, it's got to be things that reduce the noise. 
that don't just step into the noise together because it's still noisy even if you're with another person you're trying to get to know. Well, there's some – okay, so a few things. One, to add some validity um, to chasing that dragon, it's – partially for me, it's the scarcity of the thing that makes it that much more valuable, right? Um, I can't be, I can't, you and I can't have, I can't have the same relationship with everyone that I can have with you. And so like, just from the, there's never been a point in our 30 years that we haven't stayed in contact. Um, you know, you live in South Dakota now and I'm still, you know, I bounce all over the place between Texas and Arkansas, but you know, we still constantly stay in touch um, the other two, when you're talking about food and music, um, there's something I, and I get into like human evolution to, to a degree with this. If you can sit down even like in front of a campfire, like there's something like kind of in our DNA, you sit down with somebody across the table and you share food with them like that. There, there's something sort of, um, ancient about that. Uh, and what you're offering and, and plus, you know, you're, you're also producing, your body's producing like positive chemicals. You're like, Hey, I've got good food and I feel good and I can talk to this person. So you're doing that from a physiological level. The other thing is music. Um, I've said this for a long time. Um, if, if you're looking, if you're looking for like a, an argument for the existence of God, I always point to music because there's absolutely no reason music should exist. Right. Um, but the, the thing about, and I didn't really appreciate it. Grow, and this is one of those growing up in a, you know, a little church where everybody's singing hymns and nobody really seemed to care uh, right. about even the songs. You're like, you know, communal singing in that sense never really did anything for me. It was kind of boring. Um, but you go, go to a concert, go to be religious, any concert, um, you get, 10 people, 100 people, 10,000 people all singing the same song together. Like you create a symbiotic relationship between every other human soul in that room. And there's something to that. And I don't know how, like everybody's hitting the same note. Um, you know, I don't know what's, what's you're, you're, you're literally creating the same vibration in the world. As long as yeah, as long as you're, as long as you're on on key, Um, right? There's that one guy who's not, Um, but there's something there, and I don't know what it is, but there's something that's ancient, that's human, that's metaphysical. It's something. Well, and and I think that 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 something, like you said, is a clue to things that we can't always articulate. Mm -hmm. Um, It's. It's always fashionable, and and I get I get this spirit being a bit of a skeptic myself. Um, just that's that's kind of my inclination to the world is to say, okay, yeah, but you know, because I I, I want to see things from for what they are, and that means questioning things. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's there's a lot of questioning about, for example, right now worship music that. Um, that has people saying, well, okay, that's just a show. It's just a light show. It's just a concert. You know, that that doesn't, that doesn't matter. And I can, I can understand that argument because I've been in those spaces also. Right. Mm -hmm. 
But I think what, what it's better to say is that we need to realize that's not all that matters. That it, it, it also matters how do we approach the poor? How do we approach the planet? How do we care for those that are hurting? You know, how, how, do, we, how do we learn to be patient with each other when we're not at our best? Um, how, do, how do we do that, that hard work that, that really enables community? So I, I, I get that saying that, no, we need that. But that doesn't mean we don't need this other thing too. Uh, because I do think that we need to come together um, and feel something and 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 sing and make music and you know and, and pray and and that's I, I think one of the one of the real struggles I'm about to open a can of worms I don't know if you want to get into do this it. or not do it but that's one of the real struggles in approaching church uh-huh. uh, because, it, so much of modern church, and this is not one flavor, this is kind of across the board, is you're, you're just being sold something all the time. Mm-hmm. You're, you're constantly being sold, hey, you should like this thing. You, you should be a part of this. Um, you know, aren't we great? Don't you want to give your money here? It's not always just money. It's also validation for your message or your, your perspective on the world. And it's not that there are no places that you go and are just invited to be who you are with people that are on that same journey. Those places exist, but they're hard to find mm-hmm. uh, be, because, because we don't know how to balance those needs of being together in a moment and, um, and singing and connecting emotionally with the, the, day-to-day work of community we, it's hard for us to think that both can exist together mm-hmm. well can't they they have to <laughs> i mean that's one offer they have to they have to well i mean and that's they the... have to and there's one of the things that i've seen um i don't and i haven't like one of the things that I, I, I saw a lot in, especially like in the new startup churches, were like, come join our small group. Everything's about small group, small group, small group. Right. Maybe, and this was years ago. Um, Bill Hybels. And they were just like, we're going to cram you into this group of people where, and it's based off whatever interesting. And I've been in a lot of groups that are absolutely not, no, no church affiliation, whether it was CrossFit or, you know, whatever, motorcycles, whatever the interest-based things pirates pirating yeah maybe that one's a little different that's a little bit more of a religious experience um closer to death you know uh um the crossfit felt pretty close to death a few times the um but you develop a relationship based off this sort of common interest but like if you leave that thing, um, then you're sort of no longer in that again. What? And this is one of the, like you lose that community the moment you stop going to CrossFit. Like you're no longer part of the yes. cult. One of the things that's been interesting about what kind of what I'm talking about here is the group of friends that we we had in college, and and that 
age brackets a formative year too because you're you're Absolutely. psychologically psychologically you're doing a lot of things during that time so I, I, there's part of that as well because i hear like people come out of the military and they'll talk about you know they maintain same kind of friendships of, of you know people that they served with um but with those other groups like the moment you leave like you're no longer in that group anymore um, the thing that's been really interesting about this one is the moment we all left, we all stayed in contact. Like it never, like whatever the, the attachments were that we formed during that time stuck. And there's been part of me kind of taking it back to their, our current age. And like I said, universities have shifted and, and I'm, and I'm not trying to, I'm not making a religious argument here. I'm making a community argument that I see so many students missing out on something that could be so much bigger in their life if they would just put down their goddamn phone for half a second and, yeah. and go eat something and have a drink with somebody and just go have fun and then share life. Um, and not and not do it like I said it's not the go do it and train you know we're, we're going to go create this thing just go do it um <laughs> now nah, I can't talk about that I was just I can't I'm not going to say what we called it but when we used to go to grocery stores stack up a bunch of two liter bottles down the aisle and sling Jason Granger down the down the aisle and like I said all 18 year old men are idiots <sighs> Some of us more than others, but God bless that version of me. Like I just really, like I want right. to, I want to give that guy a hug. So right. much. Um, just do it. <laughs> well, I, I I think part of it, what you're talking about, the real shift, or or one of the real shifts. I'm I'm not going to say pin everything on this, but mm-hmm. one of the real shifts is that um, we we sort of started from an understanding that we were idiots, we knew it, mm-hmm. and and that people kind of suck. I mean, we, we, we knew that too. So um, not in the sense of nobody can be trusted. You know, I, like I said, I think we default at that age to uh, believing someone is genuine and, and truthful with us. Right. But um, I don't think that we went in believing that we were, um, that we were good and that everybody should love us, you know. We mm-hmm. we went in looking for a place to belong, but understanding that we were also pretty flawed. I think one and, of the, one of the things that helped there is we had some really good mentors at that point. We did. And we they, they were shared mentors. Yeah. Yeah. And and some of those mentors became friends yeah. later on. Um but I think now so much of the approach starts with not this idea of we're all kind of in this together um, mm-hmm. and we're all, we're all learning together because we're all just kind of nobody's, nobody's got it right. figured out. Um, we start with the idea that everybody's got it figured out for me. And so we start with this expectation of judgment and I have to, I have to present something to the world so that I fit into the world because what I see is people with a procured image that, uh, that uh, or proctored image that say, this, this is uh, who I am, um, and I don't measure up to that. So uh, there, there's, 
it's a real struggle to be genuine when whenever you're uh, whenever you don't think that your flaws can show and that was also by the way a big theme in Bonhoeffer's writing mm-hmm. that's true um, so where do you think is this where the anxiety comes from like um, and I see different versions of problems and, and I hate just like picking up problems because I, I, I love my students right um, but the th- I see so much, ang- I, I see so much anxiety and detachment. Like, um, and it's, it's, I say it all the time. Like they're either sitting it in their apartment on TikTok or in texting each other and being anxious or smoking weed and playing video games. Um, right. but in either case, are they getting out and interacting with people in person? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's I think that's part of it, certainly. Um, and th- we we give kids their identities early mm-hmm. on. I mean, we give them their identities, um, and then as they grow, they learn what of that they're going to claim and what they're going to reject. And it's not like we start off saying, uh, "Oh, I'm going to program you in a certain way," but when you're when you're a little kid. Uh, there's there's a great line from the Atom Project if you you haven't seen it you know mm-hmm. um, that uh, the parents are are worried about their uh, about their son and um, one of them says I you know I, something about I don't know if he if he's gonna fit in you know what uh, are are we are we making him weird for the world and the other one says well, he's a child we are his world right now mm-hmm. and that's the way we start out and then one of the beautiful things about those young adult years is you're mature enough and have some of those tools to decide what you're going to be you know to what of that you're going to keep and what you're going to reject and i think the um one of the the struggles that we see with our students now our college students now is that those early formative years um they've been left adrift a lot uh, because communities are fractured because um, whatever. I mean, grumpy old man, you know, shake my cane, but because families don't stay together or because people move around too much or because there's too much time online. uh, We have given this generation an identity that says you are the most anxious people on earth Mm -hmm. and we're sorry, but that's just who you are. And, then they've got to earn, unlearn that before they learn something else. And that's, that's a tough thing for them to deal with. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, 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 it is. Um, yeah. And then COVID certainly hasn't helped any of that. Oh Lord. No. All right. We're, so we're going to feel the effects of that for a while. I, I, I have seen a dramatic shift in my students um, pre-COVID versus, I don't know if we're post-COVID, but um, going back in like in-person classes and just kind of the, the interaction I have with students, is seem, they seem like a completely different type of student um, than they used to be. Um, and maybe that'll work itself out eventually, but um, I don't know. But yeah, I agree. We're going to see this for a while. Um, resiliency really took a hit. It did. 
It did. I yeah. I've te- I had to. I either deal with a lot of apathy or I, I'm talking a lot of people off like cliffs. Um, right. They're just no no in between. Um. All right. So, fellow grumpy old man, where do we go from here? Like, is like that's the other thing is when you hit middle age, which we are. Where do we go from here? Do we go from here? Is there anything we do from here? We could have, and we can have the middle. We may save that one for another one. The middle age angst conversation, where you just feel like, <laughs> God, I, I I've got twenty more years before I. Like I've checked off all the boxes. I'm not quite ready to die, but I still have stuff to do and I don't know what to do. Well, yeah. Well, and, and even if I keep doing what I'm doing, am I going to succeed? Right. Um, right. Because by, we've, we've also piled up our fair share of failures right. along the way. Um, and, and that, yeah, that's, that's another conversation, another day and probably a different audience, but um, for, I think for the community aspect, where do we go from here? How do you not keep going? You know, how, how do you not keep trying? Um, because I, I I tell people I quit every May. Mm-hmm. Because every, every May, I have students that I have worked with for four years um, that I have I have watched grow and mature and uh, become just these beautiful creatures. Yep. Um, not finished products, but these beautiful creatures. And then I have to ship them off to somebody else who is not going to value them like I value them uh-huh. and uh, who is, is probably going to abuse them. They're going to take some hard knocks mm-hmm. um, and they're going to feel alone a lot. So, so I quit every May. Uh-huh. Um, and then usually by July, I'm like, Okay, I'll do it one more time. Uh, but I don't know how to stop trying. I, I, I think, yeah, go ahead. Oh go no, ahead. it's I, it's same kind of thing as like I'll especially with my graduate students or you know I'm like all right, finally get them where they need to be. They do their final you know portfolio thesis and then send them out in the world. And I was like, okay, I've got resolution. I can leave now. I can go on yeah. to the next chapter, but then there's like, but there's that other crop who's just been in for like, you know, a year. I still have some work for them to do. And they're like, okay, I'll finish them. I'll get them through. Right. And then and it's rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Okay. Like it's, you're looking for resolution where it's like, okay, I can step away now and go do something else. Um, but it never actually shows up. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, there, there's there's no good off ramp. Um, no, when you feel res- when you feel responsible for people, um, but I, I think there there are also glimpses along the way that that keep us going with it too, uh, mm-hmm. both among the, the students we work with, but also among uh, among other friends that we've made along the way, and and friends that we still have from uh, from that formative time in college. I think back to when Jason died. Uh, that's going to be nine years in um, uh, October, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was such a traumatic time for us because it, it was just he was there and then he was gone. Yep. Um, and so much 
surrounding that defined what my life became after that. Um, partly because of the, the loss of that friendship and that sorrow piled on several others at that time of my life when a lot of things were falling apart. And also professionally, because I, I took a pretty hard stand um, against some of our uh, ecclesial powers for some some things, some some of the ways they tried to use his death to bolster their own status. Yep. And um, hence, <laughs> hence I am in South Dakota in the hinterlands. Um, hey, throw me in the briar patch. I'm fine here. But uh, but I remember that time after he died, um, getting together with people I hadn't seen in years. Mm-hmm. And that um, that I would not see again face to face sense. Mm-hmm. And just that that sense still of common grief keeping us from just flying off into space. Uh, yeah, sitting at Waffle House with uh, you and Paula and somebody else was there. Um, and then somebody else wandered in later. Like, I, I can't remember. The whole thing's kind of a blur. But uh, but that makes me think, okay, if the worst thing, if the worst thing in the world happened to me, who would I call? Do I still have people that I would call? And I do. Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty good indicator that that you're not alone. If you if you know instantly, these are the calls I'd make. Mm-hmm. I remember, like, le- legitimately, I felt like my world broke that day. Yes. Um, yeah. Like, absolutely. Because I, I had no. Like I was like, it was shock is what it was because I remember just having to. Not only tell like because I was. One of the first people you had to make the call. I had to make the phone calls to to all the friends. Um, And I was just because I was in my office and I just locked the door and just sat there in the dark. Um, And then that night I had basically I had to go give a eulogy uh, because he was the, you know, to come full circle. um, You know, the, the Wesley Foundation where we all met, he was the director there at that point in time. And so I had to go sit in front of a full chapel of people and eulogize uh one of my best friends in the world when i was still like i was was still in shock about it um and really in the months that followed that and you know you can agree i mean you dealt with it too because we both we made i I remember making some really hard decisions and doing kind of like you to like you know what i'm i'm not going to play nice anymore especially people that are Mm -hmm. like the thing I remember everything it was it was tragic but it was also sacred and I was not going to let anybody try to capitalize on that um this the, yeah. the sanctity of that yeah. thing. Well said. Um I'm like no you cuz it especially kind of when you're talking about the the higher ups with the the institution was like, no, no, you people treated this guy like crap for a lot. or just, you know, as nobody. And now you're coming in trying to write in and pretend that you're like, you've been there all along and you haven't. Um, so please, you know, thank you, but leave. Um, we're, right. We're going to, we're going to grieve as a community now. Um, 
but the fact that that hits so hard um just goes back to sort of adds to the validity of like this was our community this was our family um and legitimately i grieve harder for that one probably than any other death um i've ever experienced right so um yeah Good there, there's there, there's also something validating in that though um if you play mind games with it which you can't help but doing uh-huh. but you think if that was me would anybody have cared as much yeah um and i think they would have mm-hmm. you know um and that's i think also uh, a sign of authentic community that um that even though we're all different that it's um that there's still such a, a sense of a flat hierarchy of we're in it together you know right. um and then and then even though we all belong differently we all matter equally mm-hmm. um and I think that um, that that's maybe kind of one of the rainbows in that cloud is to be able to to think about that and to think, you know, th- this this group, um, this community is is real in ways more fundamental than most people can imagine. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have anything to follow that with, but yeah, you're right. That seems like a pretty good place to end. I think it does. I'm actually, as we record this, I'm getting ready to take uh, 29 students on a uh, retreat. Uh And so um, I always look forward to these and they are so excited because these, these are places they, I can help create space just open doors so that they can have a similar community to what um, what we had, and it's it's just a way to pay it forward. And so I I, I love that. But yeah, it's about time to end because I got to get on the road. Okay. Uh, final thought with that. You know, I, I realized that we met on a mountain at a retreat. Yeah. You and I had the stupidity of the sunrise on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um. And then after when we, Jason died, you and I both went and uh, I think it was Brad. Uh, it's Brad, yeah. Went back up on that mountain again. So now you're going back up on the mountain. Yep. So uh, now the thing when I remember from all of those retreats was okay, you're going up on a mountain, but you got to come back down eventually. So what do you do at the time that you come back down? One of the most important yeah. things we can learn. So, all right, Mr. Van Meter, Reverend Jackass, good talk. All right. Yeah, good. This was fun. We'll have to do it again and, you know, rant about middle age or, or I'm sure we can find something. But, uh, yeah, this was good. All right, Thanks. man. Have a good one. All right, you too. All right. Let's be
is to the very least. Come now and join the feast. It is easily forgotten that the community of Christians is a gift of grace from the kingdom of God, a gift that can be taken away from us any day, that the time still separating us from the most profound loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let those who now have the privilege of living a Christian life together with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of their hearts. Let them thank God on their knees and realize it is grace nothing but grace, that we are still permitted to live in the community of Christians today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, from Life Together. I think I know what heaven sounds like. I'm almost certain I know how it feels. And it only cost me $15 to find out. My introduction to Christian community happened at the Little Cumberland Presbyterian Church my family attended during my childhood. I knew almost nothing of the world when I left for college, but church was important enough for me to visit several local churches and campus ministries at Arkansas Tech in search of a good, Bible-believing congregation. That's not what I found at the Wesley Foundation, or at least not in any form I recognized. I may not have had the maturity to understand their politics, but I could tell the people there didn't use the same religious vocabulary I was used to. Nevertheless, I signed up for a weekend retreat billed as the Great Frog Freshman Outreach Group, I would later learn, Getaway, in no small part because one of my new friends had a crush on one of the student leaders. The day of the retreat, though, I decided to stay home. A month of college had worn me out, and I never quite learned how to sleep through the constant noise in Payne Hall, where I lived. I just wanted to settle in among the familiar, to go home, curl up in my own bed, eat some of my mom's chocolate chip cookies, remember what life as I had always known it was like. 
I only vaguely knew what a wingman was, and I had no desire to serve as such, even for my new friend, at a retreat. Another new friend, however, hit on an argument that no farm boy who'd been taught the value of a dollar could refute. You paid your $15, didn't you? Might as well get your money's worth. And so I packed my bags. To relate what happened that night of the retreat would be to miss the point entirely. I didn't learn any new Bible verses or complicated theology. The programming, I would later realize, was pretty standard fare. All these years later, I could still narrate what we did, but you would just shake your head and wrinkle your nose, wondering why on earth a night like that would matter so much to me. Here's why. Because we sang, and because I belonged. For the first time that night, I was among peers who really sang together, loudly, unselfconsciously. The clearest way to say it is that they were open, vulnerable with God and one another, and not afraid. I had not sang a single note in my home church since I graduated vacation Bible school for the last time years before. That night at the getaway, I nearly blew out my lungs. I don't know how long we sang or how long we prayed in silence afterward. I do remember staying up almost all night talking to other young adults. By morning, I thought I had made the best friends I could ever hope to have. I was right about that. Although friendship would turn out to be more complicated and less exclusive than I expected. But nuance would come later. On that night, I just knew that I belonged among them in a way that I had never belonged anywhere before in my life. I could not imagine a better feeling. Those college years would prove to be a master class in Christian friendships. We made plenty of mistakes, as college students do, but we made our confession and pledged to try again, usually with a song we sang. We had to learn to fight fair, to forgive insults, to bear with one another's faults, to make room for others as they presented themselves. With the help of David and Lisa, our campus pastors, we did all of those things. Honest to God, we did them. And because we did the hard work of daily living together, we had deep connections that sustained us through struggles and formed our souls. I took for granted that Christian community would be like that wherever I happened to go. Not so much. In the three decades, my God, it's really been three decades, since my first real taste of Christian community, I have grown into a mostly functional adult. I have made other friends who have challenged me in new ways. I have learned to look back on my college experience with more maturity, to understand better where we got things wrong. But that sense of abandon and trust and belonging is something I have rarely felt since, and even then only for fleeting moments. Most people are wary and self-protective. Somewhere along the way, they get forgotten or betrayed or manipulated, which naturally makes them suspicious. It's impossible to make friends when you are constantly trying to figure out another person's angle against you. Those posing as fully functional adults, it turns out, have a lot to hide, and therefore not much to offer. Safer by far to step apart and stay closed off, wrapped up in yourself or your family unit, 
Besides, who has the time? If I'm honest, I make those excuses sometimes myself. I am lonelier than I once was and more easily discouraged. We weren't like that as college students. The young adults I work with today aren't like that either. Over my years in campus ministry, I've been privileged to see dozens, maybe even hundreds of students awaken to the presence of God and the power of community. The songs have changed, the technology has changed, the culture around them has lost its ever-loving mind. But when students gather to sing, they sing. And when it comes to the heavy lifting that is part of living with other humans in close quarters, they do it gladly. The community they inhabit isn't perfect, but it holds them and it shapes them. Community among young adults is no easier now than it was in my time at the Wesley Foundation. But the results are similar. They love each other, which is how they learn to see God's love. They come to know the character of Jesus, which teaches them how to love better. I've given my professional life to help spin this virtuous cycle. Last year, I was talking to one of our graduates about the struggles of finding authentic community after college. Why do it, she asked, tears streaming down her face. Why show us what community can be if it's so hard to find? Why set us up to want something we may never have again? My answer surprised her. It surprised me too when I felt the words forming in my mouth. Because I know what heaven sounds like, I told her, fighting my own tears by now. And I think you deserve to know too. What I didn't tell her was that such knowledge cost me $15. $15 and the rest of my life all of my life, everything. But I know what heaven sounds like. That seems like a fair trade to me.